The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. Turn with me to Luke chapter 3, please. We're going through the Gospel of Luke, the story of Jesus. And we're at this point now where we see um, John the Baptist. It's really his ministry that's... uh, pictured for us here, but we also see some wonderful things real about, revealed about Jesus Christ and his ministry on the earth. The reason that the leadership in Israel despised him so much was because of the fact that he identified himself with the people. In fact, uh, in this book over in chapter 7, you see an example of this, if you'll turn over there for just a second. Remember, Jesus said, Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. That doesn't sound like a Gentile ruler, as Jesus said. Uh, He came not for us, not for his, those in Israel and the world to serve him, but for him to serve us by going to the cross and purchasing our salvation. And the way he treated people was so offensive to the leadership in Israel because he treated the most castaway people in that culture as though they were important to him. It's an amazing thing. If you remember some years ago, uh, Campus Crusade had a little track uh, called uh, The Four Spiritual Laws. And the first spiritual law was, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And of course, those of us who are Calvinists kind of had highs over that. Uh, it was ridiculous because this is where the truth about God begins. God loves people. And it's stunning. And it can be offensive. And it was certainly offensive to the leadership in Israel. In fact, if I can, uh, verse 36 of Luke 7. I'm, I'm going to go back to chapter 3, but I just want to read this quick little story to you. Now, on the, now, one of the Pharisees was requesting him, that is Jesus, to dine with him. And so he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. Now you understand, reclining at table was the way that they gathered together to have dinner. They would, the table was very low to the ground and you didn't sit in chairs, you reclined with your feet facing outward and you're on your elbow and you're eating food. Now it would take us a little practice to do that, wouldn't it? Most of us are used to eating in a recliner watching TV, we can do that. But reclining at table would be difficult. But here's what's going on. Jesus is reclining at table with this Pharisee who's a wealthy man. And so he lives in a house that has a courtyard that's accessible from the street. In other words, you're walking along the street. You can look into this courtyard and see this glorious house. And so Jesus is there reclining with this Pharisee who wanted him to come and have dinner with him. And it says in verse 37, and there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. Now what that means, she was an immoral person. She had a reputation. So it says, this woman who was in the, lived in the city was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping. Now obviously what's happened is this woman who was a sinner had heard the gospel. And she had heard the promise of the gospel, that Jesus had come into the world to save sinners like her. 
And so she comes, no doubt she has come to faith in Christ and had her sins forgiven, and there's so much joy in her heart, she hears he's reclining at table with this Pharisee, and she goes there, and it says she brings this alabaster vial, and it says in verse 38, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and she kept wiping them with her hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now you can imagine what this Pharisee is thinking. This immoral woman has come into the courtyard and began to show affection for Jesus Christ in a most unusual way. Now it had great significance in this setting because what should have happened when Jesus came into this house is the Pharisee should have had his lowliest servant to wash the feet of Jesus and to give him some oil to anoint his head before they reclined at table. But he did none of that. And so when this woman comes in and begins to do this, it says, now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. She's an immoral person. And Jesus answered him, Simon... I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. A moneylender had two donors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them would love him more? So Simon, the Pharisee, answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. And then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? Of course he had seen this woman, and he was upset about it. He said, I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears, and she has wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. That was a normal greeting, to kiss a person on the cheek as they entered your house. It was like us shaking hands or putting her hand on his shoulder and welcoming them. says, you gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Now, you can't say that to anybody. But Jesus, the eternal Son of God who's coming to the world to die for the sins of the world, can say to her, your sins are forgiven because she could see her her faith. He could see her faith. Those who were reclining at table with him, so it wasn't just Jesus and the Pharisee, there were other Pharisees there with him, Those who were reclining at table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your sins, your faith rather, has saved you. Go in peace. See, that was really offensive to the Pharisees because Jesus loved people that they thought he should hate. You know, you might be a person who thinks that God doesn't care for you at all because... Maybe you're like this woman, you're a sinner. In fact, the fact is we're all aware of the fact 
that we have fallen short, for all have sinned and are continually falling short of the glory of God. God has an incredibly high standard, and yet he says you could never attain to it. The only way that you could be saved is if God provided salvation to you as a gift, and you could receive it by faith. Salvation including forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God. So back in Luke chapter 3, we see John doing his ministry, which was his ministry was to introduce Jesus to the nation of Israel, to the world. This is the Messiah that was promised from from Genesis chapter 3. As soon as the fall occurred, God promised to send one who would save his people from their sins. And so John has come on the scene to introduce Jesus to the whole culture, to the whole world, really. So turn to Luke chapter 3. Let me read through these first 20 verses or so, maybe 22 verses. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Iteria and Trachonitis and Licinius was tetrarch of Abilene. And yes, Abilene, Texas was named after this city. You want, why does he include this? Because for the early readers, the first readers of this book, it told exactly when Jesus entered into this public ministry. It was about the year 29 AD, and so Jesus was 30 years old, we're told later on in this text. He's about to enter into public ministry for three years in which he's going to accomplish all that he was called to accomplish or sent to accomplish. It goes on in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Annas had been a high priest for a long time until about 14 AD. And then his son-in-law, Caiaphas, became the high priest. And so they functioned kind of as a pair. Caiaphas continued to be, uh, as Caiaphas was fulfilling his role as high priest, his father-in-law served right alongside of him. In fact, he was revered even higher than Caiaphas. But he says, when during this time, now he's going to tell us an event that took place. He's done all this just to tell us when. Now, these things don't mean as much to you. These five rulers, who the Caesar was over uh, the Roman Empire, and who these other four rulers were over areas near Israel, they don't mean a lot to us. We could put a map up on the screen and show you where they were, but that wouldn't do any. That wouldn't do anything for you. What's going on here is he's placing the particular time in which Jesus enters into public ministry. And so he goes on and he says, at this particular time, the word of God came to John. The word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Remember, John lived in the wilderness. He lived out in the desert. And he dressed like Elijah the prophet. But the word of the Lord came to him, like it had to the prophets of the Old Testament. In fact, Jesus is going to say he is the final prophet. He's the last of the Old Testament prophets. And the word of the Lord came to him. God brought his word to him in a very specific way, and so he responds. Verse 3, and he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. We'll look at this word repentance in a second. I assume you all know what it means, but we'll look at it in just a second because it's, it has something to do with the fact that what John is preaching is 
you people are the, who are the people of God need to repent and turn back to God in preparation for his Messiah who has come. And he says, that is, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one, this is Isaiah, 700 years before this, Isaiah said these words. Before John the Baptist comes on the scene, Isaiah had prophesied these words. And this is a perfect description of John. Isaiah said, wrote, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every ravine will be filled. Every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will be made straight. And the rough roads smooth. And all flesh will see the salvation of God. The salvation of God if you remember back in chapter 1, is Jesus Christ. They're going to see Jesus Christ. Well, what is all this stuff about filling up the ravines and cutting down the mountains? Well, it was just, it was a metaphor for saying, John's role is to prepare the people of God for the coming of Messiah. What it's referring to, the metaphor is, when a, when a very high up person, a renowned person came to visit a city, it was common in the ancient world, to build a highway for him and name it after him. And so it'd be a smooth way for him to enter into the city. So the ravine would have to be filled, the hills would be brought down low, and the, this guy could ride in a chariot right into the town, and they would greet him and welcome him as a dignitary. And so he says, John is fulfilling this role in a sense for the greatest person who's ever lived on the earth, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's to prepare the way, not by making a road, but by proclaiming the truth to the people of God to prepare their hearts for the coming of Christ. And so he's warning the people. In fact, I love the introduction to his sermon. I told Ryan he had to try this sometime. Get this, verse 7. So he begins saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, this is his intro. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? That's what he says to them. He doesn't sound like a, a modern-day preacher, does he? You brood of vipers, is you snakes, who's warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Well, the wrath to come is, the, is what Christ is going to save us from. It's what the Messiah came to save us from, the wrath that's coming on this world. And he says in verse 8, Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. In other words, let your repentance be genuine. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. This is what the Jews said. I don't need John the Baptist. I'm a descendant of Abraham. You know, it's kind of like some people today. They think that their standing with God is based upon their parents. I had a very godly mother and father. I had two grandfathers who were preachers, but I cannot stand on their relationship with God. But they thought because Abraham was called by God and God was going to bless the world through his seed, that they had a standing with God based upon their birth relationship, their physical birth relationship to Abraham. And so John just stops them in their tracks and he says, don't start telling me that you have Abraham as your father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Guess who you are, believer? The Bible says 
that in a very real sense, you are the seed of Abraham because you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. See, he can make sons of Abraham from these rocks. He he can take the worst of us. He can take this woman who came to visit Jesus and turn her into a, a son of Abraham in the sense that she is saved and she's in a right relationship with God simply because she believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on, indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. You notice we live out here in, in the country, there's all kinds of orchards around. You notice every once in a while an orchard that stops bearing fruit, they begin to cut down the trees. Sometimes they grind them up, sometimes they burn them in piles. But they bring those trees down. Why do they do that? They stop bearing fruit. And so he says to these people who've come to him to be baptized, make sure that your repentance is genuine. And make sure that you are not going to stand before God in this judgment because you have not believed. And this faith is seen in specific things. He said, indeed, the axe is already at the root of the trees. So every tree that does not bear fruit, good fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire. That's a metaphor. It's a picture of the fact that people are going to stand before the judgment of God. And our faith in Christ is manifested by how we live. Isn't that something? It's manifested by how we live. Now, how we live may be very self-righteous, may be very religious. It may be the kind of people that everybody wants you to be. But when you have faith in Christ, there's going to be evidence of it. John mentions three in 1 John. Faith in Christ, love for the brethren, and obedience to God's commands. Here he says, in verse 10, it says, by the way, notice he says these, they're gonna, if they don't bear fruit, they're going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. This is a picture of judgment, a final judgment. And the crowds were questioning him, saying, then what shall we do? In other words, they repented. And they want to know, okay, what kind of fruit should we be bearing then? And he would answer and say to them, the man who has two tunics, that'd be like your T-shirt, A man who has two tunics is to share it with him who has none, and he who has food to do likewise. And some tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, these are tax collectors. Tax collectors work for the Roman Empire, and they collected taxes. And the way they made their money was they collected the tax, but they added their own bit on top of it, as much as they wanted to, actually. And so he says to the tax, they come to him, and the tax collectors say, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than what you have been ordered to. Pretty simple, isn't it? And some soldiers were questioning him, saying, and what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, do not take money from anyone by force. Or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. Be content with your wages. You have to understand wages here is a word that's used in Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. The word wages comes from the word that's used here in Romans 6. It comes from a word meaning cooked fish. And what it means is subsistence pay. It means they would pay their soldiers enough they could eat food. Just subsistence. And so he says, and so they were quite tempted to use their force and their authority to gain money from others. And so he tells them, 
be content with your wages. That's, that's, that's evidence of your true repentance, that you understand that God is in control. So you stop lying and cheating. Why? Is that how you get salvation? No. That's what happens to you when repentance is real and you come to have a relationship with God. He goes on, now while the people were in a state of expectation and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ. Because this is John the Baptist speaking. And John answered and said to them, as for me, I baptize you with water, but the one coming after me is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Let me just say something. We'll see this in a minute. But the word fire here doesn't mean getting the Holy Ghost. The word fire here means judgment. He's going to baptize this world in the Holy Spirit for those who believe and fire of judgment on the last day. In fact, he goes on to explain that. His winnowing fork is in his hand. You know what a winnowing fork is? Anybody here own a winnowing fork? No? Well, a winnowing fork was a tool that they used like a pitchfork. They would throw the grain up in the air in order to separate the wheat from the chaff. And so they would separate it, and then they would burn up the chaff. And that's what he says, if you notice. He says, His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. It's a picture of judgment. So this Jesus, that he's, this Messiah he's talking about, he says, is not only going to come to save, but he's coming to judge in the final day. In fact, back in Isaiah, when it pictures this coming of Christ, it compresses both his first and second coming together because it's looking off at a distance and it's saying that Christ is going to come, the Messiah is going to come to save his people, but he's also going to come to judge the world. And those who are in rebellion against God are going to be like the chaff that's burned up. And so with many other exhortations, he preached the gospel to the people. You say, man, that doesn't sound like gospel. That sounds like work salvation. No, this is gospel to these people. He's telling them to prepare for the true Messiah who's about to come. And then it says, but when Herod, and this is interesting, on verses 19 and 20, he simply tells you the end of John's public ministry. It's not going to take place for some time, but he goes and tells you this. When, when Herod the Tetrarch was reminded, was reprimanded by John the Baptist because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and what he's talking about is the fact that Herod the Tetrarch stole his brother's wife, and God's going to judge him for it. And so he says, when, when John the Baptist confronted him over this, And because of all the wicked things which Herod had done, Herod also added this to them all, to all of his bad works. He locked up John in prison. John, the one sent by God to declare this glorious message of salvation in Christ, he locked up in prison. Now, when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven. I never even noticed this till I read it this time. In Matthew it says, the voice said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Luke puts it this way. You, God the Father speaking to the Son, you are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. 
I had a young guy talk to me sometime back, actually just a few months ago, and he was telling me that one of the most encouraging things he ever read in the Bible was hearing the father speak to his son this way, because he said, I had never heard that come from my father's mouth. You are my beloved son, and in you I am well pleased. Well, what we have here in this ministry of John the Baptist, I want you to notice there's two voices. You hear, did you hear them? The two voices are this. First of all, the voice of John the, the Baptist. The only preacher you'll ever hear say, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? You won't hear that on TV, and you won't hear it from us either. We won't call you a brood of vipers. But John was confronting them with the reality of what repentance really was. A little later, he describes the wrath to come, and he says, one is coming who's mightier than I, and I'm not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He's going to bring judgment on this world. The same one who's going to bring judgment is the one who saves us. The gospel means good news, right? You know that. But you can't tell that it's good news unless you understand the bad news about the wrath of God. That God's bringing judgment on this world. He's going to make everything right. Imagine what would happen if everything was made right in our lives, for example. And that's what Christ is going to do at the second coming. The gospel is good news because he has come before the final judgment and he has brought this glorious work of salvation by becoming a substitute for us and dying on the cross for us. The second voice that's heard in this text is the Father, God the Father. You are my beloved Son, and you I'm well pleased. In other words, I, en- I enjoy you. I delight in you. You are the joy of my heart. I take great pleasure in you. And this whole thing was initiated by the Father, everything we read here, because it tells us, as we saw, that the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. God is producing Even today, he's producing an innumerable number of people who are going to inhabit the kingdom of God under the reign of Christ because God is glorious and he loves people and he's going to save a host of people. We're just a little part of that. But anywhere you go in the world, you run into people who God has saved. Jesus has been sent by the Father to come to us as Savior of the world. Romans 5.8 says God, in fact, it says this. You, we, you've heard this. I've quoted this so many times, but I usually quote it the way it appears in the New American Standard. It, but what it actually says is God is demonstrating his love for us. In fact, the word demonstrate means to recommend. If you've ever gone to uh, a Tupperware party, and they, they demonstrate how these things work, but then they, they're recommending them to you. They want you to buy them, right? I hope we don't have any Tupperware salespeople here that I, I'm not trying to offend you, but they're not just demonstrating them. Rodley, are you? No. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but you, uh, not only are they demonstrating them to you, but they're recommending them to you. And this text actually says God is continually recommending his love towards you and that Christ died for you while we were sinners. He died for us while we were sinners. 
Isn't that amazing? It wasn't after we said, God, I want you to save us. Would you send a Savior to save us from our sins? No, it wasn't. He's demonstrating his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God sent his son to die for us. What did Jesus, why did he submit himself to the baptism of John? After all, this is a baptism of repentance for sins. Why did Jesus submit to this baptism? This isn't Christian baptism. This is John's baptism. It was the people of Israel that he's calling to repent and prepare their hearts for the coming Messiah. They had forgotten all about him. And so he said, he's coming. He's here. Repent so you can be forgiven of your sins. And Jesus steps forward and to be baptized by John. Now, it doesn't tell us here in this text, but over in Matthew, when it, in Matthew 3, it tells the same story. And it says, John says to him, wait a minute. I'm not worthy to baptize you. You should be baptizing me. And Jesus said, we must fulfill all righteousness. What do you mean by that? He meant that he must do exactly what he had been sent on a mission to do, which was to identify with fallen humanity, fallen men and women in sin and alienated from God. He had to to identify with them. He had to be identified with them. And so here he is being baptized by John the Baptist for the repentance of sins. Did Jesus need to repent? No. He was without sin. But the Bible says that we have a high priest who is touched with the feelings of our infirmity. He knows what you're going through today. And I know sometimes what happens to us, we can, we can really be, um, we, we can feel like God's forgotten us. That's what happened to Job. Remember Job when he was going through all this trouble? He was physically sick to the point of death. His wife had turned on him. His friends had turned on him. And listen, listen to what he says. This is in Job chapter 9, verses 29 through 35. I'm reading, I'm reading this from a quote from the New Living Translation because it's, it's very picturesque and easy to understand. This is, this is how they translate it. Even, Job says, even if I were to wash myself with soap and clean my hands with lye, you would plunge me into a muddy ditch and my own filthy clothing would hate me. He says, God is not a mortal like me, so I cannot argue with him or take him to, to task, to trial. I can't argue with God because they're telling him, you're suffering because you've done something wrong. You ever feel like that? You ever have somebody tell you that? That's what they were telling Job. And Job says, he pleads, he says, you know, if, if only there was a mediator between us, someone who could bring us together, the mediator could make God stop beating me and I would no longer live in terror of his punishment. Then I could speak to him without fear, but I cannot do this in my own strength. Now in the King James, he actually is translated, if, if I just had a daysman, if I had somebody who could touch God and touch me, if I had somebody that understood God, but understood me as well, what would you need? You would need God become flesh, Right? There's one God and, and one mediator between man and God, a man, Christ Jesus. He's what Job was looking for. And so when Jesus came into the world, he had to identify with sinners. 
That's why we have passages like Philippians 2. Although he was in the form of God, he didn't think it was uh, something he had to grasp and use for his own benefit to be equal with God, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. And he comes into the world, and I got news for you, he would have hung out with you. He would have had dinner with you because he came to die for people like us. He came to be a substitutionary curse bearer for us. Now, there are times, in fact, I'd like to ask you, has your soul ever ached over the fact that God doesn't seem to understand how desperate you are for him to help you? Of course, we've all experienced that. I talk to people all the time that are going through that. I had a guy tell me last week, he wished he could just die because he can't stand the pain. He can't stand the, what he's going through. He wished he could just die and get out of this life. There's times we feel like Job. We, we want to say to God, I don't think I can last any longer. I've had people tell me that. I don't think I can go another day like this. I don't know what I'm going to do. You know what God says to you when you're like that? This is what he says. My son understands. That's what he says. Listen to this. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. That's not the kind of high priest you have. You have a high priest who knows how to sympathize with your weaknesses. He says, we have one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. You can draw near to God knowing that he actually cares about what you're going through. And his solution may be very different than what you're wanting, but it's going to be so much better because you have someone interceding for you, the one mediator between God and man, a man, Christ Jesus, who is now in the third heaven with the Father, who's also God, and he intercedes for you. Sometimes we forget this, and, you know, we go to prayer, and we're asking God. It's like us against God. We're pleading with God, please help me, please help me, please deliver me from this mess I'm in. Please somehow change things so I don't, I'm not destroyed by this. And we forget, wait a minute, you need to remember all you're doing is you're, you're joining Jesus Christ as he's interceding for you. In fact, Romans chapter 8 says the Spirit helps our weakness because we don't know how to pray as we ought. Don't you get tired of just praying the same thing over and over and over again? Please, God, supernaturally heal me. Or get me out of this situation. And you say it a thousand times. And then Paul says, guess what? The Spirit helps our weakness because we don't know how to pray as we ought. And he intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Let me tell you what that means. It means that he is so emotionally involved with you that he really cares what's going on in your life. And so he intercedes. The word groanings... He intercedes with groanings too deep for words means he groans in complaint to God about what you're going through. And it says, and he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is. I think that's referring to Jesus. That Jesus knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes to God for us. And then it says, and God causes all things to work together for good. Now, I know that's a nice, pat answer. I had a woman tell me once when I 
quoted that verse to her. She says, I know, I know. Go home, read the verse, and call me tomorrow. She didn't think it was much comfort that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. But I want to tell you, if you think about why, it's because the Trinity is engaged in your life. That the Spirit intercedes for you with groanings too deep for words. The Son understands the Spirit's desires, and he communicates them to the Father. Don't you love, do you have people in your life that are real prayer warriors? And you know if you call them up and say, would you pray for me? You know they'll really pray. Well, let me tell you, you have a prayer warrior who's praying for you consistently. It's God the Holy Spirit and God the Son. And they have an inside track to God. Nobody can get to God like the Holy Spirit and the eternal Son of God can. Remember, the, eternal, the Son of God is the one Jesus said, you're my beloved Son. I take great joy in you. I rejoice in you. And so when the Son brings your name, I don't, wouldn't it be something if you could hear that, if you could hear Jesus uttering your name to the Father? <laughs> wouldn't that be something? And that's what the Bible says is happening. And so this is why we put all of our hope in Christ. Well, who's going to help you now that you're in this mess because usually our messes come about because we made bad decisions, right? Not always, but sometimes. And so you're thinking, well, God's just chastening me. He's going to leave me in this mess for another 50 years because of who I am and what I am. And then you remember that what the Bible says is that God is continually demonstrating his love for you and that while you were still sinners, Christ died for you. What kind of shape were you in when he saved you? You were at war with him. And so we sing songs like this. This is out of the Lutheran hymnal, hymn 370, but you'll recognize it. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. I think the sweetest frame is... Some, there's arguments over what that means. I think he's talking about any human being. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. When he shall come with trumpet sound, when he comes back for judgment on the day of judgment, the hymnist says, when he shall come with trumpet sound, O oh, may I then in him be found, clothed with his righteousness alone, alone, faultless, to stand before the throne. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. It says in the hymnal, in the Lutheran hymnal, that this is based on 1 Timothy 1.1. This is what Paul said in 1 Timothy 1.1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior, and Christ Jesus, who is our hope. Christ Jesus is our hope. You know, we're not supposed to be asking each other, are you hoping? Has God given you hope in this? We're supposed to say, why do you have hope? 
your situation is so bad, why in the world do you still have hope? Because of Christ. Because the one you're hoping in can raise the dead, heal the sick, cast out demons. See, that's who our hope is in. It's in Christ. John says that the one through whom the wrath of God is coming is the only one who can save you from that wrath. In, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, it describes salvation this way. is When you heard the gospel and you turned to Christ, it says you turned from your idols to serve the living and true God and to wait joyfully for the coming of Jesus who is saving you from the wrath that's on its way. That's coming. The final judgment really is coming. But when you come to trust Jesus Christ, he's the one who is saving you from that day. Turning from idols to serve a living and true God and waiting for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who is the one who rescues us from the wrath that is certainly coming on this world. God didn't call you to execute judgment on this world. I hope you understand that. (laughs) He hasn't called you to write nasty letters to people who are living in sin. He's going to do the judging. And because his heart is absolutely righteous, his judgment is going to involve both the deeds that are done as well as the motivation for doing those deeds. So he didn't call you to judge. He's called you to have hope. Because he's coming. You know, you have a ministry somewhat like John the Baptist. You're supposed to be announcing to people, not that Jesus is coming, but that he has come. And that's what John was saying on this text. He's come. Jesus said this in the seventh chapter of the same book. He said, I say to you, among those born of women, that's everybody. Among those born of women, there is no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet, yet he who is least in the kingdom of God, that's you and me. He who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And so Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg people on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God because he made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see, Jesus became identified with people like us. And when he went to the cross, he bore our sin on Calvary. And so if you're thinking, God can't use me because I am too damaged. I want you to understand that God takes damaged goods and restores and renews and uses for his glory. There's nothing like hearing someone preach the gospel who is totally broken and damaged and, and deserve to be thrown away, and yet God saves and restores, and renews. And that's why Jesus came. And you know what he wants from us? He wants us to rejoice in that. He wants us to believe it 
and proclaim it. He wants us to be ambassadors. Like John was an ambassador, you're an ambassador. You don't have to call people vipers. It's okay just to be nice to them, but tell them the truth about Christ. Tell them to be reconciled to God because Christ has done everything necessary for them to be reconciled, to believe on him and receive this glorious gift that he came to give us. Let's pray. Our Father, we are a blessed people beyond our ability to measure. When we start taking inventory of what you have done for us and the way that you have blessed us, we are ashamed of ourselves for being so ungrateful and so unthankful in so many ways. Father, I pray that this week all of our prayer, all of our prayer life would be centered on giving you thanks instead of asking you for stuff. May we give you thanks for this glorious gift of a Savior who was willing to come out of from heaven's glories down to this earth and to associate with the lowliest of sinners so that he could take our place, die in our stead, to bring us salvation, you know, that we could be reconciled to you and call you Father. Oh God, we thank you for your love for us, that you would send your own Son to do this great and glorious work. It's a glorious gift, and we have received it simply by faith. All of us are aware that we don't deserve it, but we are joyful because of it, and we thank you for your good grace. In Jesus' name, amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.